yet. Can we awesome? Well, hey, will you pray with me real quick? Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to dive into your word tonight. Thank you for being able to gather together and worship you. Uh, I pray that you open our hearts and minds and that you speak to us through the word of the scriptures, Lord. We love you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. All right. Well, in the church today, I think John the Baptist might be one of the most neglected figures of the New Testament. We often look at Paul, the apostle, and the courageous suffering that he underwent for the sake of the gospel. We look at the disciples that traveled with Jesus during his earthly ministry that sacrificed everything, dropped and went with him. We look at maybe the women who discovered Jesus' empty tomb and were actually the first people commissioned to ever tell anyone that the tomb was empty, that the Lord had risen. It is right to have respect and admiration for what God has accomplished through those people. And we have a great example of faith in their lives and, and ministry, what God did through them. But when it comes to John the Baptist, I think sometimes, and my confession is even this has been my, my temptations, I think of John the Baptist as kind of this, what we would call today, maybe crunchy. Maybe like extra crunchy in today's words. He, he wears like really weird clothes. Uh, made of camel hair, you know, all natural, and he eats bugs. He probably smells like he lives outside because he does live outside. Kind of a weird guy. But John the Baptist, in our passage tonight, is the man that introduces us to one of our Lord's most beloved and glorious titles, the Lamb of God. John the Baptist is an immensely important figure in the history of, of God's people. And if you're a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, the history of God's people is your history. So let's listen to what John the Baptist has to say about Jesus through God's word and reflect on what it means that Jesus is the Lamb. As is tradition, let's stand for the public reading of God's word. We're in John chapter 1, starting in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said to them, I am the voice of one crying out, in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you were not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one that you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it 
remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. You may be seated. There is so much in this passage that frankly we will not have time to fully unpack tonight. Where did John the Baptist come from? What's he doing? Why is he baptizing people? After all, in the Old Testament, there's no record of this ritual of, of baptism, of cleansing. What does it mean that the Spirit descended from heaven like a dove? And why is that important? Those might be a few questions that you have that we're not going to go over tonight. But certainly feel free to ask your parents or your leaders or myself or Pastor Scott, of course, if you've got any of those types of questions that you're struggling with or curious about. What we will focus on tonight is how Jesus, as the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world. We'll learn how this title shows us that Jesus' life and death for us was always God's plan to reconcile sinners to him so that we might truly live. So just an initial point of clarity, this gospel was written by John the Apostle. And so that's not John the Baptist, it's a different John, so it can be confusing. There's two Johns. Uh, but, of course, John the Baptist is the, the John that we are reading about here in the text. We start by reading verse 19, and remember, Jesus' public ministry on earth has not quite begun yet. It's not been fully revealed. And the scene starts off with John the Baptist answering questions from religious figures about his identity. They first ask him, well, he first answered them, he says, no, I'm, I'm not the Christ, I'm not the Messiah. He's not there to witness unto himself, is what he's saying. I'm not the Savior. I'm not the person sent to redeem the world, to save the world. Then they ask him if he is Elijah. Now there's some important context behind this question. At first it might seem obvious. No, he's not Elijah because he's John. But the important context here is that the last prophet of the Old Testament was actually named Malachi. You can turn that back not very far in your Bibles to get to the book of Malachi. And the very last thing that Malachi prophesied, the very last thing that God said to his people before Malachi died and there was no longer a prophet, he said this, that before the Messiah came, Elijah is going to come before him or someone like him. And then there was 400 years of complete radio silence. So in other words, the last thing that God's people heard God say was, Hey, you know the Messiah, the Savior of the world, that guy that I've been prophesying about and talking about? Yeah, before he comes, just a reminder, Elijah's going to come before him. All right, peace out. 400 years, nothing. This question makes sense why they asked John the Baptist if he's Elijah. After all, John the Baptist even dressed and acted like Elijah. Yet John answers the priests, No, I am not. Just like he said, he's not the Messiah. Now, this is kind of a strange answer because some of you might be familiar with um, John the Baptist as Elijah. We're told in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says that John the Baptist is Elijah, in a sense. Before John the Baptist was born, an angel of the Lord told John's father that he, John the Baptist, would go before the Messiah. He would come before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah. So John the Baptist was not Elijah reincarnated, but in a very real sense, his ministry was marked by the power and spirit of Elijah, the great prophet of the Old Testament. 
So John was not lying when he said he's not Elijah. He's, he's saying, no, I'm not the reincarnation of Elijah. I am John. Yet, John's ministry is a fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy and other prophecy in the Old Testament that Elijah would come before the Messiah. From 400 years before. After this, they asked him, are you the prophet? Here they're referencing the great prophet Moses and what he mentioned in Deuteronomy that the prophet would come. And again, he says, no, I'm not. And so finally, perhaps in frustration, the priests and Levites ask him, okay, who are you? You can kind of sense their frustration, right? Who are, okay, we're wrong. We're, we don't know who you are. Who are you? And this time, John answers them that he is the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. The Levites and the priests were looking to the book of Malachi, the book of Micah, the book of Deuteronomy for the identity of who John the Baptist might be. But John the Baptist takes them to the, the book of the prophet Isaiah. He references Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 in relation to his identity. That's what he's quoting. And what's important here is that Isaiah in chapter 40 declares that before the Messiah comes, again, before Jesus comes, before the Savior comes, the Messiah would send his messenger, and the messenger would say, clear the way. It's like he's saying, build a road, knock down the trees, blast a tunnel through a mountain if you have to, make straight the way, prepare the way for our king. The king is coming. And John the Baptist says, that's who I am. I'm here to tell you that the king is on his way. John's answers reveal a humility that if you call yourself a Christian, if I call myself a Christian, we should all seek to replicate in our own lives. John is given a great mission from the Lord. He is actually the last prophet. After Malachi, John is, is the last prophet of, of the Old Testament. That God appoints to his people. And he has been prophesied in God's word. Imagine having prophecy about you specifically, individually, in the Old Testament. He's causing such a stir that the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, are noticing. And they're, and they're sending people to question this man's identity. They might think, maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's Elijah. He's gaining notoriety. It would be very easy for John the Baptist to boast about his mission, about the gifts that God has given him and his responsibilities. And his replies all point away from himself to the Messiah, away from his own identity to the identity of Jesus. So I ask you tonight, and myself, how can we do that? There's a very real way that we can do that. And it starts, it doesn't end with, but it starts by recognizing our need for a Savior. Recognizing our need for a Messiah. And also recognizing that we are created by a mighty God. That we are merely tools to be used by Him in whatever way He pleases. That we are like clay and He is like the potter. He shapes us, He molds us, but we are fully His. Anything good in us can only be attributed to God. A helpful mantra that many of you have heard is, He must increase so that I must... Very good. Very enthusiastic. Decrease. Thank you again. In fact, it was John the Baptist that, that first said those words in John chapter 3. The same guy we're talking about tonight. He must increase that I must decrease. 
Now, none of us are John the Baptist. None of us are a prophet appointed by God. None of us fulfill Old Testament prophecy individually. But we are called as Christians to witness in a way that is similar to the way John witnesses. Pointing others to Jesus and telling them to make straight the way, clear the way, prepare the way for Jesus into their own hearts. All right. I'm going to pause. That was kind of a lot of setup. That's kind of a two-part piece of, of Scripture here. For what comes next, that, that is quite a bit of setup. But what's important to remember is that John the Baptist's purpose was to identify Jesus as the Messiah. And in doing so, he fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. And why is that a big deal? Anytime that prophecy is clearly fulfilled... It's a reminder of God's power and faithfulness that he keeps the promises, that he is the author of history, that what he says will come to pass. So let's look at why that should matter to us. Why should it matter that what God says comes to pass? In verse 29, John sees Jesus coming and says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This is the next day after he'd been questioned by the Jews, and he's still around them, and he now reveals the identity of the Messiah. He says, this is him. This is the Messiah. This is who I'm deflecting your questions from and pointing you to. And he gives him a title. He calls him the Lamb of God. But what does that mean? You might be interested to know that this exact phrase is only applied to Jesus in two books in the Bible. And both of those books were written by the same person. This book, this book of John. Of course, it was spoken by John the, the Baptist, but it was written by John the Apostle. And another book written by John the Apostle, the book of Revelation. That's where our memory verse is in this week. Only two times is it applied to him, yet throughout Christian history, we are very fond of calling Jesus the Lamb of God. You might also be surprised to know that there is actually some debate about exactly what this means. However... Given what we know about the Old Testament, it's my conviction that it is very clear. There is no doubt why God gives his son this title. If there is one prominent image in the Old Testament, one theme, one thread that's kind of weaving throughout the Old Testament, it is that of a sacrificial lamb. We can first look at the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 12, we learn of how God sent an angel of death. To slay all of the firstborn sons in Egypt <coughs> while the Israelites were there. What did he command the Israelites to do in order to spare their children? Take a lamb, slay it, kill it, and put its blood on their, do on their doorpost. And if they did that, then the angel would pass over their home and spare their firstborn son. This is what instantiated or initiated the celebration of the Passover. Because the angel passed over their homes. I wonder if that's why they call it the Passover. The angel passed over their homes. And the Jewish people celebrated this in remembrance in this feast that they call the Passover. They celebrated in remembrance of being saved from the wrath of God in a very real physical way. Their children were saved from a physical death. Their lineage could live on. But while they did not know it at the time, this was actually a picture or a foreshadowing of what God's plan was for all of human history. There are many ways that the Passover lamb is paralleled by Jesus. 
For instance, Jesus was actually handed over to be crucified on the day of preparation of the Passover. That's what we're told. And actually, all four gospel accounts make that point very clear. He's handed over on the day of preparation of the Passover. What does that mean? Why is that important? It means that at the very hour that Jesus Christ was handed over to be crucified and murdered and killed, there were lambs being slain throughout Jerusalem to prepare for this Passover feast to remember what God does for his people. That's not a coincidence. There is no coincidence with God. Identifying Jesus as the Lamb of God tells us that the death of Jesus causes God's wrath to pass over those who trust him. Lambs were also sacrificed as daily ritual atonement. Every single day, in the morning and the evening, lambs were sacrificed, reminding them, the Israelites, of their need for forgiveness. Lambs were thought of as, as spotless and pure animals, so the symbolism that's important with the lamb is that they represent the spiritual cleanliness or the spiritual innocence that we need in order to have a relationship with God. There's also a prophecy in the book of Isaiah which foretold the coming of a suffering Savior. Isaiah 53, 6 compares the suffering servant king to, guess what? What do you think? A lamb. So clearly this title holds great significance. One last example that I'd like to look at with you is in Genesis chapter 22. It's actually the first biblical reference to a sacrificial lamb. It's another story that many of us may be familiar with. It's the story of when Abraham was called to go to Mount Moriah and offer his son Isaac as a living sacrifice to prove his faith. If you're not familiar with that story, that's okay. Genesis 22. You can read the story. It's a beautiful story. But what I want to zero in on tonight is as Abraham and Isaac reached the mountain, Isaac, his son, who at the time did not know what was happening. He did not know that his dad was leading him up this mountain to sacrifice him. So obliviously he asks, Dad, where's the lamb, bro? I see this, you know, this altar. I see this wood. You got some flint and steel maybe ready to, you know, crank up a good fire. But where's the lamb? And Abraham answers him, listen to this, God himself will provide the lamb, my son. In the last moment, he did provide a sacrifice to take the place of Isaac in this story, and Abraham proved himself faithful. But this story is not merely about Abraham's faithfulness. Abraham's reply to his son Isaac is, to me, one of the most beautiful sentences in the pages of Scripture. God himself will provide the lamb. Can't you see that all along, God's plan, from the earliest days of human history, his plan and his promise was that he would provide a lamb. He promised to provide a sacrifice for us. But not a mere animal. The lamb. Jesus isn't called a lamb. It, it's not said of Jesus that he's oh, kind of like a lamb. He is called the lamb of God. A lamb whose sacrifice can actually pay for sin. God coming to earth and paying the price himself, which is the only sacrifice that has ever actually saved anybody. 
In the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament, we are told, there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. In Hebrews chapter 9. No forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. The point here is not that blood has magical properties. I was talking with my wife just last night. We are having a baby and we're so excited. and We were like, somehow... Your blood is giving nutrients to the baby, but his blood is separated. There's like, blood seems magical sometimes. And you can read Hebrews chapter 9 and, and think, wow, blood, blood has to be shed, so blood is, is special. But the point here is not that blood has magical properties to cleanse, but that blood represents life. And so the shedding of blood is the payment of one's life. If it was simply physical blood that was needed to be shed in order for us to be saved, Jesus could have gone to the doctor and got his finger pricked, and we would have been good to go. That would have been a lot easier than what he had to go through. No, blood represents life. When we're told that there's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood, that means that God cannot extend forgiveness without satisfying his justice. So death must occur. Blood must be shed. In order for men and women to receive forgiveness for what we owe. But did you know that Jesus' death paid for the sins of even those people who lived before he came to earth? The saints of the Old Testament, the believers in the Old Testament, Abraham, Israelites that had faith. Animal sacrifice never actually made anyone right with God. I certainly had this misconception. And I do not blame you if you do as well, but this is really important to understand. Animal sacrifice never actually saved anyone spiritually. It was commanded as an act of faith. It was pleasing to God as an act of faith. But animal sacrifice is only prefigured or foreshadowed or pictured what was to come in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 tells us this clearly. It says... It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible. It's impossible for animal blood to save you. It, the Bible could not be more clear. And I imagine there were probably some Jews, when they read that, because Hebrews was written to Hebrews, or Jews, they probably were like, what? I didn't think that's how it worked. I thought, you know, we, the blood of the lamb, and we're saved, and we, the lamb's blood covers us. No, the blood of animals, the blood of bulls and goats... It's impossible for it to take away your sin. It doesn't make you right with God. There's nothing special about that blood. Abraham and all the Old Testament believers were not made spiritually clean by sacrificing animals. They were made spiritually clean because they had faith in the living God and His coming Messiah. And it is His blood that reaches back into history and covers them the same way that it covers Christians today. Of course, they knew less about the coming Savior. Again, a big... A big feature about the Savior. They did not know. Who is he? Who is this guy? We don't know when he's coming. You just have to look at the very start of this passage that we've read. They're, they're questioning John the Baptist. Are you, are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Who are you? Are you going to save us? They didn't know who he was. But it remains true that Jesus' blood, which is to say his perfect, innocent, spotless life, is the only life that could ever pay the debt that we owe. An important point to note also is that when John says that Jesus takes away the sin of the world, 
It does not mean that he pays for every single sin, but rather it means that Jesus does not save merely Jewish people. Salvation is extended. It's not distinguished between your lineage, your nation, your ethnicity. Another way that you could say this is, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world without distinction, but not without exception. He takes away the sin of the world without, without distinction, but not without exception. Without distinction, he doesn't distinguish. There's no distinction. Tall or short, man or woman, Jew or Greek, slave or free, all that believe in him will be saved. Which was an important aspect to get into the Jews' heads because they did not understand or honestly like that message. But you just have to read verses 11 and 12 of this very chapter to make it clear to us that not all will be saved. Not all will have eternal life with God. But this is what it means that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It means that Jesus Christ, our King, our Savior, is the sacrificial Lamb who takes our place. If we believe that He died for our sins and rose again, and we place our lives in His hands, God promises that all who trust in Him will live with Him eternally. He will never cast us away. He says, I will hold you. The image that, that God gives us in John chapter 6, I will hold you in my hand and I will not cast you away. You are secure. And we just read that God's prophecies come true. God doesn't lie. So just as the prophecies about John the Baptist came true, so too will it come to pass that all of us who placed our trust in Christ We'll spend eternity with him and with each other. Not because of the work that we've done, but because of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. And pray with me. Father, thank you so much for our salvation. Thank you for sending us the Lamb that covers our sin, that is our substitute. Thank you for the beauty of your word that we can study and read and see that you have known since before the foundation of, of the world. You have known who we are. You've known who you've called. And I, I pray that your spirit moves within us. Holy Spirit, I thank you for the, the work that you've done in the believers in this room. And I, I pray that you will sanctify us and guide our conversation together. We love you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We worship you. And it's in the name of Jesus, the Lamb of God, that we pray. Amen. All right, you're dismissed to your small groups.